basically every one of you in here has heard many, many times in your life. It could be, though, that there may be someone here who has not heard it before or maybe hasn't heard it often. But from my life and my uh, being raised as a, as a PK, you know what a PK is, right? Preacher's kid. Um, I heard it a lot, and that's a good thing. I don't think these three words are anything that you can say too much. I think that although it, it, it's sometimes something that you hear over and over, it, it, it could have a, a sort of a, there could be a complacency about it in your own mind, or you, or you don't really dwell on what the real meaning and, and, more importantly, the power of it is. But there are three words amongst many things in the Scripture amongst many things in the Gospels, about, amongst many things in the ministry of Jesus, all of the things we could talk about that we do from this place every Sunday. We, we talk about these things. But, there, but it all can be summarized. In, there are other ways to summarize it, but it all can be summarized in these three words. And the three words are, Jesus loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you today. And I don't know that if anybody asks me, what is this What is this thing, this Christ-following life that you're trying to live every day? What is it all about? I'll tell you, if I have to tell you, and you've only got one sentence or one moment, what I can tell you is, is that Jesus loves you. It's the truth. It's a fact. It's something that is so powerful, too, that it's not just like, yeah, I know Jesus loves me. I've heard Jesus loves me. There's power in that. I want to share a couple of stories with you today about how the the, the love that Jesus has for us, the the love of God, how it changes lives. How it changes lives. The first story I want to just talk about is about a young boy. He was a young teenage boy. He was uh, born in Puerto Rico. He, uh, he, was, he was there, and as a young teenager, he was in a very uh, abusive home. He was in a home that where his parents didn't care for him, didn't want him. In fact, they were uh, practicing uh, uh, witchcraft in the home. They were very uh, serious about the occult. And they did it to the point where they actually would cast spells upon him. They had satanic rituals where they would burn him with cigarettes. They even called him, in one of the spells that they did, they called him the son of Satan. A young teenage boy. They treated him harshly and abused him. So you can imagine how angry this young man would be how hurt, how dysfunctional, how, how uh, uncertain and unloved this boy must have felt. And as a result of all of that, he became very unruly and difficult, really, if not even impossible, to deal with. And so finally, his father, being sick of it all, and being the Satan worshiper and hateful man that he was, and I hate to say it, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this is a true story. He, he sent him to live in New York City where his brother lived, the boy's uncle, who didn't want him either, didn't want to have to deal with him, but he, he sent him up there, didn't speak English, 
didn't know anybody other than the uncle that didn't want him. And here's this boy. You think he got any better when he got up there? He was still angry and confused and, and hurt. And all of these things came into his life. And, and as a result of all of that, his life took a very severe downward turn. And I'll tell you more about that later. I want to also share another story with you today about a woman who, uh, a true story of a woman who was caught in the act of adultery with a married man. Now, this is 2,000 years ago in the scripture. You'll find this today. We'll be looking at the Gospel of John. That's after Luke. John chapter 8, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. It's the first 11 verses we'll be talking about. Um, you, if you have your phone or your devices, wherever it is, we'll also be putting this on the screen uh, at the time as we get through it. But I just wanted to make you aware that's where we'll be today. So this is 2,000 years ago or so. And Jewish law, Jewish law stated that the consequence for someone that was having, that was caught in that circumstance in an adulterous affair was them to be dragged out into a place in, in town or outside of town and stoned to death. Now, there's a lot of ways you could die. In this world, I can't think. There's probably a few others that, that might be there, but being stoned to death would be probably one of the worst deaths that you could ever hope not to have, or, or that one would have to go through. And it happened on a regular basis in those times. And so, as this news spread about this woman, the the crowds began to get bigger, and more and more of the stones are being picked up in in the hands of these would-be executioners. And, they're, and, they're, and, and, and you can just sense the tension rising. And I'm going to go and read from the first four verse, first three verses, excuse me, from John chapter 8. And this is how it starts. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, they put her in front of the crowd. Now, as this news spreads, I, I, I could see this as the crowd is getting bigger. More and more people are picking up stones. The, 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 the anticipation of this is rising. And as that happens, I believe that the that, that you can hear the rumbling, that there is a, a mob mentality coming along. And, and the religious elite of the day, they approach Jesus, who by now Jesus has a reputation for being a, a, a person that's known for his profound teachings, his philosophical insights, and his, not only his teachings, but his miracles. He's, he's a known uh, entity at this point. And, and these, these uh, religious elites, the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law, in verse 4, they say to Jesus, they say, Teacher, they say to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? What do you say, Jesus? And I can sense then for a moment when they're doing that, that then the crowd and the hustle and bustle, it, it silences down a little bit. Mood's still tense, but it gets silent a little bit. And the stones are still in the palms of the hands of the people who were there, the crowd. They're angry. 
They're disgusted with this woman. They're ready to take out their frustrations upon her by throwing a stone, and maybe because of what she did or maybe just some other frustration in their life that they want to take out on her, and they're, they're poised and ready to go. But Jesus has been asked, what do you say, Jesus? It seems like a reasonable question. What the law of Moses says we're supposed to do is, what do you say? But it wasn't a reasonable question because the Pharisees and these, and as I call them, these elites were trying to trick him. And it says this in verse 6, first part of verse 6 says this. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. In other words, they were trying to outsmart Jesus. I'm going to take a side note here for a second. If you ever try to outsmart Jesus, you're going to lose. <laughs> you can't stand up to grace and truth. And that's who he was. But they were going to do it anyway. So then he does something mind-boggling to, I'm sure, the people around it. It always has been to me. You think he would have set them straight, man. He would have put them in their place. He would have declared something and just been, no. He didn't. They asked him the question, and what did he do? And if you go and look at the next part of verse 6, it says this. They ask him, what do you say? And instead of answering, he stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. I'm just going to do that for a minute. So they're asking him this question, and this is his answer. The way I would take that is, I'm not paying any attention to you. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to answer that question. Who are you now? Whatever it is, but that's not what they were looking for. They weren't looking for somebody just to be so calm. They wanted an answer, and of course, then what they did is they they kept asking. He's kneeled to the ground. He's writing in in the dust. But they kept asking, and in fact, the Scripture says they were demanding. And in the first part of verse 7, it says that. It says they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, and I'll get to that next point in a moment. So here he is. They're down there. He's riding in the dust. And they're demanding an answer. Hey, we said, what do you say, Jesus? We expect an answer. What do you say? Tell us what your answer is. So then he stood up and he lived up to his reputation. He lived up to his reputation of a profound teacher. He lived up to his reputation to all of the people who had seen and heard of him as to what he was going to do next with an insight when he said this in the next part of verse 7. So he stood up again and he said this, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first. Now what do you think those people thought when he said that? They had to be like completely dumbfounded. They had no idea that he was going to rise up from riding in the dust and turn the tables back to where they were going to be challenged. But that's what he did. If you've never sinned through the first time, so what he was saying is, if you haven't done the way I would say it, if you haven't done anything wrong in your life, go ahead. You're perfect. Pick up a stone and throw it out. Those people had to be just completely... The way I would think about it is, is that this crowd and everybody in the symbol, they were waiting for the answer. He's on his knees. He stands up. He declares this amazing 
truth and statement that he made. And it had to like echo, like it's in this building now, but like if you were in the Grand Canyon, you ever heard those things with an echo like that? I could just see if you were just sitting in that place. Those words just had to resonate with everybody around there. And clearly it did. Because that's what he said. And the crowd, again, they had to be in shock. They had to be confused and even amazed at trying to understand the challenge that Jesus had just put forth to them. Because it wasn't him commanding them to do something. He was challenging them to make a decision about what they needed to do. And then what does Jesus do after that? After speaking that, you would think that's pretty good, right? But who has not sinned? If you've not sinned, you pick up the stone and you'd be the first one to throw it. To me, that's pretty profound. That's amazing. That's truth. But that wasn't enough because Jesus <laughs> was going to do something beyond that. In verse 8, it says this. What does he do after he says this amazing thing? He stooped down again and rolled in the dust. That's what he's doing. He, he's, he's, he said what he's going to say. And I, can't, I, I would think that the crowd is beginning to process what he's saying. Now they're thinking about it. And they're thinking, I believe, that we may be as guilty of things in our life as every bit as much as what she's being accused of being guilty of. What are we going to do? That's the challenge that Jesus put forth. So one by one, one by one, they drop their stones and they walk away. Think about that. A big crowd like this, maybe about this many people together, and all of this happened, and they're all standing around waiting to stone this woman. But they drop them and they walk away. One by one, the Scripture says. In fact, it says it in verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And listen to this. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, I can only imagine what this woman's feeling right now. She's got to be overcome with relief, first of all. Think about the just the, what she was just about to go through. I would imagine she would have been in tears. And she's moments from death. I mean, she's moments from being a person lying dead under a, 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 a pile of rocks moments from that. And then, even though Jesus has now stated something that is powerful and, and insightful and truthful and, and challenging, you'd think, man, he's, he's done his job for the day. He can pack up and go home. That's enough teaching for today. Uh-uh. No. He didn't leave it at that. He says something even more profound. Even though she may not have understood it fully, probably did not. Jesus is still writing in the sand now after he had told them to put their stones down if they weren't going to be the first one to throw it. And then in verse 10 it says this. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, it's just he and the woman now, the Scripture says, where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? He's taking this again to another level, I believe. And then here she is hearing this, going through what she's just gone through, whatever kind of baggage she brought in her life that put her in the place where she was having a, a, an improper relationship and an adulterous relationship to begin with, all of that, she's got to be emotional, probably sobbing, shaking, maybe shivering a little because of all that she's gone through just moments before. And she replies to Jesus' question, and she says in verse 11, no one, Lord. No one. The 
There's not any accuser. None of them condemned me. So Jesus is now standing with the woman, hearing her answer. And here we go again. Another profound statement. Which is even more, I believe now, than any of the other statements he has made through this story. Showing his great compassion. Showing his grace. His perfect balance of grace and truth. If it ever was shown, it was shown here. He's showing this, but mostly what he is showing. Listen to this now. Mostly what he is showing at this moment, what he is about to say, is he is saying, he is showing the absolute love that he has for everyone. Not just this woman, but for each and every one of you here today. For each and every one that is a member of your family today. For each and every person that you know or have encountered. Jesus loves you. And he loved this woman. And he said to her, after she said, no one, there's no accusers, there's nobody to condemn me, Lord. You've asked me, and the answer is no. And then Jesus said this, the next part of verse 11. He says, neither do I. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, let me tell you, if there's ever ever a person that had the standing to say anything other than that, it would have been Jesus. He was the only sinless person. He was sinless at that point. He was sinless before that. And he was sinless after that. If there's anybody that could have said something different, who could have legitimately criticized, condemned, ridiculed, But what did Jesus say? What did the loving Jesus say? The loving Jesus said, Neither do I. Even though I can, and I have the standing to do it, I don't. Now go and sin no more. There is power in those words. It may seem something simple to say and to look at on a screen. But let me tell you, this woman was about to die. She was guilty. She deserved the punishment according to the times that she was about to receive. But then in an instant, in a moment, probably in in shock and in fear, in just a moment, the power of the love of Jesus changed her life forever. Go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Her hopelessness at that moment turned to hope because of what he said. Go and sin no more. Her insecurities turned into confidence because of what he said. Go and sin no more. Her fear became courage. Her worthlessness became self-esteem. And in fact, her death, her certain death, became life because he decided that he was going to tell her, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Why did he do it? Because he loved her. In those five words, those five words, Jesus showed love to her like she had never experienced before in her life. I'm certain of that. 
that there was actually somebody, don't know what her life experience was because the scripture doesn't tell us, but, but I can assume that somebody in that position is coming in with some, with some difficulty and some challenges in her life and some, and some things that she's gone through that we don't know about, like many of us have. But there was actually somebody, there was somebody there who cared about her. She's thinking that cared about me, just his presence and his amazing love, literally, his presence being there on the scene that day, literally saved her life. So you could say she was saved because of that. Now, Jesus could have gone along with the crowd. After all, it was in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. He could have gone right along with it. That's what he could have done. He could have said that. But instead, she was saved by his love and his compassion, not his judgment. Folks, when you're in a place in your life, when you've got a chance to answer a situation, to speak in a situation, to deal with a situation, to make a choice in a situation, you do it in love, not judgment. Amen. We do it in love. Not in judgment, not in ridicule. That's not what she got from Jesus. No. He said, I don't condemn you neither. Go and sin no more. You see, when you hear, and I know, I, I hope I'm not embarrassing myself, but I, I'm going to tell you, when I hear those words, Jesus loves you, I think about this woman. I think about this woman. It's because it's more than those three words. Jesus loves you is life-changing power. Jesus loves you is life-saving power. It saved her. And for all of you who've made a decision and who believe today, it has saved you. And it has given you that opportunity we sang about earlier to walk out of a grave and to live eternally. There will never be death in your life if you're following the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a truth. That is a certainty. It's life-saving power. Jesus loves you. Now remember, Jesus came not for the righteous. He didn't come for the ones that are doing it. He came for the sick. He came for the lost. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he was here. What is this thing that you do? Billy, what is this thing that you follow? Jesus, what's your religion? What's your faith? I'm going to tell you what it is. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. And he's proven it in so many ways. He came here for me. He came here for you to seek and to save the lost. And so for this woman, first time in her life probably she felt valued. For the first time in her life she felt accepted in a way she had never been accepted before. For the first time in her life, she, she was saved. She was saved, literally saved. Her life was saved. Which brings me back now to this story about this young Puerto Rican teenager. Teenager. He got out now. He's in New York City. They had abused him. Remember again, burnt with cigarettes. They cast satanic spells on him. They called him the son of Satan. I don't know how much worse you could do to your children than that. Do you? I mean, there's a lot of things you could do, but those are right up at the top of the list. 
this young teenage boy. His name was Nicky. And Nicky was alone in New York City and unwanted and unloved. And so what he wound up doing is he got out on the streets and he found a home in the gang culture of New York City. He got involved in gangs and he felt like that was somewhere he had acceptance. And in six short months of being in these gangs, he rose from being a newcomer and a nobody to the top warlord of one of the most bloody, bloodthirsty, I'd say, violent gangs in New York City at the time. The name of the gang was called the Mau Mau's. And he rose to the top because he was the most violent amongst them. Why? Well, I mean, look at his childhood. That's why. He was looking for some place to, to have an identity, to be accepted. And the way he was accepted is to go out there and beat up people, take what he wants, rape, steal, murder. That's what he did. He was a violent, terribly violent person. And that's why he rose up to the top of this game. Now, this man, or this teenage uh, boy at this time, he was approached by a man on the streets of New York, out there doing his thing. And he was approached by a guy in a suit and tie. In this, in this neighborhood, this was an ethnic neighborhood. He was a white guy in a suit and tie. And this is how they describe him in the book that I was referring to. He was a skinny country preacher. And I saw a picture of him, and actually he was. He was about as skinny as you get. I mean, he was. He was a skinny country preacher. That's how they described him, how he described himself. His name was David Wilkerson. He didn't know anything about gangs. He didn't know anything about New York City. He'd never been there. Certainly hadn't been in a neighborhood like that. But he knew God called him to be there. So he had gone out there, and he was just preaching the gospel to everybody that would listen to him, no matter who they were, whoever would listen to him. He was, he was preaching. And you know what he preached? You know what he said? You know the words that he said to everybody that he encountered? He didn't have some big sermon and have all these fancy notes and slides and all this stuff. You know what he said? Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. It doesn't matter everything else. I can tell you whatever you want to know, but what I'm here to tell you today is that Jesus loves you. He was declaring it on the streets of New York City. And this boy, Nicky, violent, son of Satan, Burns of cigarettes all over him from a, a, a family practicing witchcraft upon him. They encountered, he encountered David Wilkerson, and when he did, for David Wilkerson, it was a very, very dangerous situation. It was a very tense situation. In fact, during the time that David Wilkerson was there, he got beat up a little bit. He got roughed up. There's stories about that I won't go into. But it wasn't something like he was in some safe harbor. He was in the middle of the devil's den in New York City. This guy didn't care if he lived or died. It didn't matter to him. Nicky didn't care because everything that he had was found, and his identity was found in violence. But David Wilkerson said just to him the one thing, Jesus loves you. And Nicky, and you guys can come and worship him, Nicky went right into the face of this preacher, this book says, and got right in his face, and he was so angry, and his eyes were filled with rage, and he was, he was spitting anger. He was so mad. What he was mad about is because he didn't want to hear what this guy had to say. He said, get out of my face, preacher, or I'll cut you up. He meant it. He wasn't saying that to scare the guy. He meant it. He was going to kill him. He'd cut him up. See, because... Look, Nicky couldn't understand this because he's hated all his life. He's despised. He's unwanted. He's cast aside. 
all of these things. But yet, he hears somebody that he doesn't know saying that he loved him, that Jesus loved him. He said, something he had never heard. He had heard the words, Jesus loves you. And so as he is standing there looking at this preacher, threatening to kill him and cut him into pieces, what did the preacher say to him? He said calmly, because he knew he could kill him. He knew that was what could happen. He said, Nikki, you can cut me into a thousand pieces. But every piece will be saying to you that Jesus loves you. That Jesus loves you. That Jesus loves you. See, Nikki was confronted at that moment by the power of God's love, not the words of a preacher. He was confronted with the power of his love. And since that day, because the story is, Nikki Cruz accepted Jesus Christ into his life that day. He found identity in the person of Jesus and not in the violent gang culture that he had come accustomed to. All of the hate and all of the abuse and everything was washed away by the blood of Jesus in his life that day because one skinny preacher decided that he was going to tell him what? That Jesus loves you. He loves you. It's three words. But there's power in those words. There's such power in it. No matter where he had been and what he had done, what he had just decided completely changed his life. He was saved because of the love of God. He was saved by the power of God. And since that day, since that day, Nikki Cruz has been all over the world sharing this story. He's been in prisons. He's been on street corners. He's been in big crusades. He's been in churches. He was in a church that Pastor Bill pastored years ago. Remember that? And he came in and people just flooding to the altar, hearing the story that was changed in his life forever because of three words. Jesus loves you. And that same love is what Jesus offered to that adulterous woman. She was loved for who she was, and what he said to her was, I love you, and it changed her life. The power of God's love can change a broken life. And I'm here to tell you today, this is important. I'm telling you here today that the enemy of your life, the adversary of your life, wants you to live in the past. He wants you to live in everything that has happened before today. And I'm here to tell you that God is not interested in your past. God is interested in your today and in your future. That is the promise of God. He wants to remove everything in your past and put it as far as the east is from the west. He wants to cast it into what we call, and what the scripture calls, a sea of forgetfulness. He wants to forget it and remove it. Because that's the loving God that he is. Because Jesus loves you. 
I want to just tell you that God desires you to live in this world today. That's what He desires for each and every one of you here. He's not concerned about the past. He's concerned about the present and the future. And that there is no other love that you will ever experience in your life, no matter how wonderful your spouse, no matter how beautiful your children. There is no other love that is as inclusive as forgiving, as true and as honest, provided to you where it's undeserved and unmerited, you will never encounter love like the love of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me, please, as we close this service this morning. And I want you to, if you would, everybody bow your head and close your eyes, and I'm just going to ask this question. It's a very important what your answer is today because this is, the, this is the idea of everything that we're about here in this church and all that we do is about people being included in the kingdom of God. People making their way into an eternity spent in the presence of all. And it is the love of Jesus, the love that God the Father had by sending His Son, Jesus, to allow us to be able to do that. As every hand is bowed here, I would ask you, if there is anyone in this room that is uncertain about that, if there's a place that you don't know where you may be if you were to meet eternity today, if you're not sure about that or if you've never decided that, I'm going to ask you if you would make that decision today.